One thing about a mirror that I've discovered painfully, and I think many of us have discovered as well, is that mirrors don't lie. Now, I know what my children are thinking, right? They're thinking, Dad, like you do this every morning. You look in the mirror, you do things. This is what you're hoping will happen. But Dad, let's face it, the mirror doesn't lie. Well, good morning. A question to ask you, just, just out of curiosity, uh, what is usually the first thing you say to yourself when you get up in the morning and look at yourself in the mirror? What's that? Yikes. Okay. Did I write that down? Yeah, I put yuck. So we're, we're, we're good. Okay. Anybody else? It is what it is. That is the voice of practicality. We must learn from this woman. Oh, Yoda, we will sit at your feet. Anybody else? You're so old, really. <laughs> More sleep. Does anybody ever say something like, oh, God, help me? And no? Okay. Well, you get the point, right? You get the point. Mirrors don't lie. We are, I, I'm taking a break from this whole questions that Jesus asked because you probably assume that that's what I would do, is piggyback on Pastor Shannon's sermon series again. And you're probably thinking, oh, for goodness sakes, he's going to do another sermon, something with, to do with the resurrection. No, no on both counts. You're good. But we are looking at James chapter 1 this morning. Uh, a very, very important portion of Scripture. And I don't know if you're the kind of people that, like when you eat your Oreos, maybe when you were much younger, you used to kind of take the Oreo and take off the, the chocolate part, you know, the two, the biscuit, and eat the cream. How many of you actually have been guilty of doing that? Look at that. Wonderful. That's kind of what I've done with this portion of Scripture this morning, because the text that we're going to be looking at is literally sandwiched in between a paragraph before and a paragraph after. But the content of what James is dealing with is very congregational-specific, people-specific to what they were going through in that time. And I thought to myself, you know what, this is good, but in light of time, which always seems to be a challenge, maybe what I'll do is I'll just scoop out the, the white filling and deal with that part. Because I think in light of all three pieces, it's got probably a lot more to say that I think is applicable to us as a congregation today. Now, James is an interesting person. First of all, because there's so many James in the New Testament. There was James, the brother of John, who was executed in Acts chapter 12. But the James who's writing here is a different James. It's actually Jesus' physical older brother. He is referred to as James the Just. He eventually became, quote-unquote, uh, a almost like a lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he presided over a very, very important kind of like 
admin business meeting in Acts 15, where, where the Jews finally said, okay, you know what? The gospel is not just for us. It's for non-Jews as well. So we are going to stop making non-Jews live up to all these standards that we used to held high, and we're just going to let them be faithful to what, what the, the apostles, the apostolic teaching actually is. Um, James eventually uh, was martyred in about 62 AD, but ironically enough, James really didn't believe his younger brother was the Messiah. And I love this because I was reading this again, and I tried to put myself in the family situation. Jesus had, I believe, three older brothers, and he had a couple of sisters. So you could almost imagine the sense like, my little brother? Come on. And we have instances in the book of John and in the book of Matthew where his family at one point actually thought he had lost his mind. They didn't believe in him. But of course, the resurrection changed everything. The letter that James wrote here is a very, very different kind of letter. It's, it's kind of like a Proverbs on steroids letter. When you read the book of Proverbs, you understand that there's always kind of like a, a first statement, then a qualifying statement, and then boom, move on to the next proverb. Well, James is kind of structured that way. There's, there's, he's got a thought, he introduces it, he gets to the point, he has a concluding thought, and then he moves on to something else. But one thing that most people have agreed about the book of James, or the letter to James, is that it is a book or a letter about action. There's not a lot of think this through, and work this through, and contemplate on this, and pray this through, it's like James saying, hey, listen, just do it. As a matter of fact, in the 108 verses, there are literally 50 commands. 50. Who was it written to? And the reason why I'm taking a little bit of time on this is this is important because not only for this morning, but I think also for, for us who have kind of gone back to the book of James as one of those, you know what? I could tell, only take so much of Paul because he leaves my head spinning. And, you know, I love the Gospels, but tell me what to do. Make Christianity practical and doable for me. You will find yourself wandering back to the book of James because it's that kind of a book. It was written to a group of people that he simply identifies as the scattered tribes, the 12 scattered tribes. These were Jewish Christians who after the stoning of Stephen and Paul kind of, Saul kind of snapped and decided to persecute the church, were literally driven out of Jerusalem and moved on, like if you think about it, they were there. A lot of them moved on to Syria, to Antioch, um, a little further west and up that way. There's another map that might help you a little bit more. 
these maps, you know, they're, they're never really true to form, but nevertheless, the point is, is that this was home, and then after Paul went after them, all of that became home. This is the second time in Jewish history where, technically, they have become exiles for two entire different reasons. The first time, it was simply because they were Jews. When the Assyrians came in in 722, and then the Babylonians in 586, they were taken out of their homeland, they were resettled elsewhere, and then eventually when they made it back home under Nehemiah and Ezra, Zechariah, they were planted back in Jerusalem. And then now Jesus comes and reveals to them that he is their Messiah, and they put their faith in him again, they get booted out and run out of time a second time historically. But this time, not by the Assyrians or the Babylonians, they get run out of town by their own people because they're considered heretics, cults, foreign religion, the deceived. And the book of James is written to a group of people who are suffering persecution, who have suffered the loss of property, who have literally have become refugees. Think, i.e., the Syrian crisis. Kind of gotten quiet over the last couple of years. But th th when you think of the book of James, that's what should come to your mind, is that these believers are forced out and away and... Um, God only knows how they're living and making it through. They were powerless. They were living like peasants. They were being taken to court. They were being subjected to all kinds of injustice. They were being discriminated against. And not only that, because Rome tended to favor uh, liberal Judaism, they not only were they persecuted spiritually for, for what they believe, but even their jobs and their lands were controlled by, by the Sadducees. So folks, here's a group of people who have lost everything, who have little to next to nothing, they have resettled, and they're starting all over again. And they get this letter from their pastor, and he's writing all these quick, this is what you got to do, this is what you got to do, this is what you got to do, this is what you got to do. First thing, obviously, just do it. And that is the point that James really drives home throughout the letter. Okay, point one. James is going to tackle the issue of hearing, not doing, and being deceived. It's, um, it's, it's, it's an uncomfortable verse because it's kind of like not the, the good, encouraging news you'd want to hear from your pastor, particularly when you are on the run and far away from home. But he says to them, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. More literally, it would be, be the kind of person who's doing without stopping. 
The kind of person who obeys and puts it into practice. It's a strange way of framing this, but to say, do the word, is literally what James is saying. Do the word. Roll up your sleeves, put it into practice. Because if you are a hearer and not a doer, then you are setting yourself up for self-deception. These were Orthodox Jews who had converted to Christianity. So they understood, they understood the importance, the centrality of listening, learning, but then living it out. As a matter of fact, listening and learning only really, really had traction and became real once they lived it out. They heard God's word so much differently than we do today. I'm going to break that open later on and, and, and unpack that for you, but um, I just want to set this up properly. Um, James, in understanding the, the, the kind of like the Jewish DNA of his congregation, knew how important obedience was in the context of family, in the context of a small community of friends, the synagogue, the temple. In other words, living the word, doing the word, was never viewed as something kind of like a rainy day project. I'll get to that eventually. It was high on the order of the day. And when word gets back to him, that now all of a sudden there's, there's kind of this, this new attitude in the people of God. And it is, well, we don't have to live by the Old Testament anymore to be right with God. We don't have to obey all the commandments and keep track of our disobedience so that when it comes to the sacrificial offering time of the day of Passover, we go through all that stuff. We, we, we don't have to do that anymore. So the pressure, the, the, the obedience pressure to obey the law to the nth degree is kind of off of us in a sense. We, we no longer obey to be right with God. Okay, so then maybe we can chill out a bit. Maybe we can hear God's word as it's being taught or shared. And again, in that context of being a displaced people, of being refugees out scattered all over the place, you almost kind of wonder how did they ever get to hear or learn the word of God? Were there traveling teachers? very prevalent in the New Testament. Did they have to rely on their memory of what they heard back in Jerusalem in the temple or in the temple courts where they were allowed to, to hang around? Or from the house meetings that they had where they would go and share, you know, share what they were taught from the apostles. The point is, is that you now have a group of people who are not walking around with the New Testament in their hands. 
or an Old Testament. They're not allowed to enter the synagogue because they're considered foreigners and heretics. They've got to rely on what they know, what they've been taught. And somehow it's like, we got to live this out. we we, we got to live it out or lose it. Now, in the verses preceding the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, James says, receive the implanted word humbly that will lead to the saving of your soul. Receiving the word of God, in other words, being open to the word of God, believing the word of God, and responding to the word of God ought to be all one and the same. It ought to be something that we just naturally do. But they were struggling with that area. And James wastes no time saying that if you just hear and don't do, you allow the process of self-deception to start at work in your life. Now, again, I don't know about you, but if I was on the receiving end of, of, of an exhortation like that, a letter that's being circulated in maybe house churches or wherever Christians are known to be gathering, I'd go, oh, man. Really? Yeah, James is like, yeah, really. Um, the process of self-deception began to set in, for whatever reason, when they had listened to God, but were perfectly content to remain with the knowledge of what he wanted them to do without actually obeying what he wanted to do. It's almost as if to say obedience was optional. Secondly, looking, leaving, and forgetting. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like someone looking at his own face in a mirror, for he looks at himself, goes away, immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Now, I'm convinced in my own heart, a little moment of brevity, that I think ladies take more seriously what they see in the mirror than men do. Is that fair? No? You see, I, I, I think, you know, your average man would probably look in the mirror. I mean, not all of us guys. I mean, you know, kind of go, yeah, teeth are still there. We're good to go. <laughs> Whereas I think the ladies go, oh, yeah. I, I don't want to go there. Uh, yeah, yeah, I better just, I, I just better leave that little stop on my head. Uh, that's probably a good idea, good idea. The point is, and again, and I, you know what, I, I, I taught this for years, and I wish I could go back and apologize to people, because I used to make such a big fuss that the Word of God is a mirror, and oh my goodness, when we look at the Word of God, we see ourselves, and, and th- that is true in some respect, right? It doesn't matter what you read in Scripture, except for Leviticus, you know, I mean, if you're reading about body organs being removed, there's, there's, there's not really a lot of application there, unless you want to donate a kidney or something, but... The, the point is, is that there's a lot in Scripture when you're looking at, you kind of go, wow, I see my soul. 
But the, the point James is trying to get across is how ridiculous is it for a person to look in the mirror and go, man, I got dirt on my face, I got a cut, uh, and then literally walk away, do nothing, and forget about it. It's absolutely crazy. So just for the sake, just for us as, as friends and family, how many of you ladies look in the mirror and forget about what you see a minute later? Don't ask that question? Of course not. My goodness. I, I, sometimes I look at my, my wife and I go, whoa. I mean, she doesn't need to look at the mirror, but... Yeah. Uh, but she does, and then she goes to work, and she does stuff, and it's like, man, this is wonderful. This is getting better, like... You know, Maybe I should take a tip from the pro. And uh, yeah, anyhow, like I said, the first slide, you know, it just, it's, yeah. It is what it is. God help us all. He forgets what he looks like. The point here, and the point, I mean, it, it's, it's fairly obvious. It's rhetorical. Nobody looks in the mirror and forgets what they see. That's almost unheard of. It's so not true about the human situation that to suggest such a thing would be, you're just talking gibberish, being ridiculous. But that's what James is trying to drive home to his congregation is that what you know to be true about the word of God it's not something you just kind of park there and go, well, one day I'll figure it out, and one day I'll give attention to it. And, you know, if I'm being called to forgive or love my neighbor or trust God or be slow to anger or not use foul speech, I, I, I'll think about that, James. I'll, I'll go on a spiritual retreat, and maybe I'll get additional revelation on what that actually means to forgive my brother. The point is, is that self-deception sets in very quickly, and it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a self-deception that's unlike any other deception, because I think it's the worst kind. It would be equivalent to a doctor giving you a diagnosis of the lump that he found in your chest and you going, oh, I see what the x-rays say. I know what I should do. But the truth is, is I think I'm just going to go on an extended vacation and forget about it all and it really doesn't matter. Again, right? Ridiculous illustration, but that's the point. There is a self-deception, though, that is far worse than that. And it's the one that sets in when people hear repeatedly, week after week, year after year, and they hear, and they hear, and they hear, and there's so much to hear, there's so much to learn, there's so much to read, there's so much to study, there's so much to make notes about, and it's just, it's endless 
But when it all boils down, how much of it has gotten from our head to our heart into our hands and our feet has been lived out? That's the hard part. And to think that hearing, believing, knowing is, well, you know, I'll get to the obedience part later, but two out of three ain't bad, right? Essentially what James is saying is that two out of three doesn't mean anything unless you're living out what you've heard. The receiving, the hearing, the believing, the what we think is learning, and then I'll unpack that, is actually minuscule in terms of its importance to the living out. I digress, but I move on. Thirdly, looking, persevering, working, you know, but the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres, listen, listen to what he's saying. Looking into the perfect law of freedom, perseveres in it, is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. Like, if we, should, uh, if we were to just take this verse and, and let that be our confession or our proclamation at the end of every Sunday message, that we will be the ones who have heard the perfect law of freedom. Now we're going to go home, we're going to read it again, we're going to persevere it, we're not going to forget about it, but we're going to do the work. We will be people who will be changed and transformed. James is saying that it's going to be work. There is just no way around it. It's going to be work. Now, in the illustration where he says the person who looks in the mirror, sees their face, walks away really quickly, forgets about it, and this person who's looking intently in the Word of God, he's using two different words. And, and many, many people thought, Bible interpreters thought, well, it's, it's the intensity of the looking, right? It's the intensity of the hearing, of the soaking it in and digging deep. And again, it's got nothing to do with it. It's just, it's another way, it's just another way he's using the language to get their attention. But interestingly enough, that this little word that he uses here is only used two other places in the New Testament. It's used of both Mary Magdalene and John when they got to the tomb and they had to get down and look into the tomb to see. So, it just... For whatever it's worth, the, the, I, I think there's a, there is this sense of, are you really looking for it? Are you really humbling yourself and lowering yourself to, to, to make an effort to see? The next thing he says is perfect law of liberty or perfect law of freedom. This almost seems like a contradiction because if there's one thing that in their minds they would not have equated with, is law and freedom. Paul says in a different place, and over and over again, and, and no wonder he, I, th I think he got himself in trouble with Jewish Christians, he said the law brought slavery. The law exposed what you did wrong, but it did nothing to empower you to change. All the law was was like a judge looking at you going, you sinned. 
this is what you did wrong. But in terms of gaining some kind of moral strength or spiritual strength from knowing that you did wrong in the law and changing, the law was powerless. And that's why Jesus came. He obeyed the law fully. He died for our sin. His obedience and the blessing of God was given over to us so that we were free we were free from having to obey law to be saved. We were simply free to obey God. Because there was no fear of punishment. There was no fear of God is going to be angry and upset with me because I failed again. Because we have been given the gift of salvation, we're free to obey God. James says, that we are to persevere in it. Persevere. To remain constant. To be working on or working out our obedience to the word of God in the whole of our lives as we follow Jesus. I was going to talk about this later, but I'll just introduce it now so I don't have to talk about it later. The word persevere is a word that is found all throughout John, where John uses the word continue, abide, abide. Many of you are familiar with that word, remain. They're both the same words. This is an intensive form. In other words, it's like James is saying, when you hear the word of God, stick with it. Hold on to it. Carry it with you. Stay with it. Don't let it go. Take it with you everywhere you go and hang on to it because you're going to have to work it through in the whole of your lives. And then he goes on just to show us how easy it is. He says the doer who works. That, that obedience displays itself in action and work and doing. In other words, there are times when obeying God really is a matter of empowered effort. It's our effort, his power. It's our willingness, his power. But we still have to do it. And you know, I know that probably for many of you, this is simple. This is almost basic, basic Christian teaching. But I remember two places in Luke where people came up to Luke, or came up to Jesus, and they were, you know, they're trying to get on his good side. They were showering him with praise. And um, he said, Jesus, your family's here. Isn't that wonderful? And he says, my mothers and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. Then one lady thought, oh, I'm going to one-up them. God bless the woman who breastfed you. That was a little awkward. And Jesus said, well, you know what? God bless those who hear the word of God and keep it. You know, I talk about raining on somebody's affirmation. John 13, 17, he says to his disciples after he explained the significance of washing feet and serving one another, he says, now that you know these things, You'll be blessed if you do them. You're not blessed if you know them. 
You're blessed if you do them. I want to say this much, folks. That God, when God has expectations of us, and he makes that clear in a sermon, in your study, you're listening to a podcast, but you know that you know that God has spoken to you. With his expectation comes the empowerment to do what he's asking you to do. If God is asking you to do something, he'll give you the ability to do it. And I saw something in Scripture that I've never seen in about 30 years. I'll share with you again. I, I shared it with a, a class that I taught a couple of months ago in, in, in Toronto. And there's other illustrations of it, but, but I, I really hope it, this is crystal clear. Do you ever find it weird why Peter said to Jesus when he was still in the boat, Lord, if it's really you, command me to walk on the water. It's just weird, right? Like you think he'd be saying something like, uh, Jesus, we don't think it's you. Uh, we don't know what that apparition is, so we're staying put here because nobody walks on water. But Peter says, hey, in other words, I know it's you, so if it's really you, command me to walk on water. Now, what's the point? The point is, is that Peter had enough sense to know that if God asks, God gives the ability to do. That if God expects something of us, he empowers us to do. Nobody else was ready to jump out of the bowl, but Peter understood this much. That Jesus, when you ask me to do something, it doesn't matter what it is, you'll give me the ability to do it. But that's the way it works when it comes to obedience, is that the ask always precedes the ability. Where our faith sometimes goes suspect and somewhat insulting to God is when we say, no, no, you give me the power to obey you first, then I'll go and do it. In other words, make my feet like duck feathers and I'll walk on the water. That's not how faith grows. Command me to walk on the water. Walk on the water, Peter. The moment he stepped out, God's ability sustained him. The moment God makes an ask of you, it doesn't matter what it is. And we all have, I mean, I've been here long enough to hear the stories of people who have said, you know, God asked me to do this. I was scared to death. I couldn't believe it. I, it was like, that's a big ask, God. And the moment I did, the moment I obeyed, the moment I responded to God's ask, he made it possible. So here's the thing. So why do we obey? Why do we obey? You know the reasons we obey, because we love him. We know obedience is connected with blessing and all that. But, but here's the point. We don't obey to be saved. We don't obey to stay saved. We obey to be spiritually formed. Obedience no longer has anything to do with our salvation. Obedience has everything to do with our spiritual formation.
Every time you obey, it's like the, 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 the part of you that's being formed into the likeness of Jesus has just grown a bit more to the point where, like Jesus, we all may end up being obedient unto death. It's the point of obedience. It's trusting, knowing, loving, doing what God's asking because that's what it means to be like Jesus. Obeying is not about trying harder to do what God's asking you to do. It's about training better. Every time we obey, it's like that little obedience muscle gets stretched and it gets stretched and it gets stronger, and it gets stretched, and it gets stronger, and it gets bigger, and it gets stronger. But let me tell you something. The very opposite happens too. Every time we delay, every time we disobey, every time we refuse to do what God's asking us to do, it's like, it's like atrophy. It's like our obedience muscle becomes small and hard, and we just lose our ability to respond to God and do what he's asking us to do. Okay, conclusion. What does this all mean for us today? It is doing, obeying the truth, not merely knowing the truth that leads to spiritual transformation. For those of you who have done your education, your degrees, I don't know if you ever studied the, the actual history of education or anything like that, but, but he, he, let me do like the, the TV Guide version of it. Greek thought influenced European thought. European thought influenced North American thought educationally all around. And, and the way it worked was this. Teach so that they know, and if they know, they'll learn, and if they learn, they'll figure it out how to do. That has been the model of education for I don't know how many millennia. The Hebrew method of education was... I talk, you listen, we put into practice right away, you make mistakes, I teach so you learn how to make, correct the mistake, we put it back into practice right away, you make another mistake, I teach you where you went wrong, we learn together, we make a mistake, and then once you actually do it right, you have learned. Anything short of that, you have not learned. Contrast that with the way we learn today. There's a present cultural phenomena today that just is astounding. And it works this way. Is that our ability to access and acquire knowledge has, our ability to access and acquire knowledge has so greatly surpassed our ability to apply and act on it. You're saying, well, what are you talking about? In other words, it's this. Our ability to eat so much food has exceeded our, uh, our ability to, to actually work it off and lose calories and stay in shape. I just I want to be careful how far I go with that one. You know, I know, I, I, I know. You beat me up before I even get to the door. Right? But we understand what happens to our human bodies when we acquire more than we use. There's no difference spiritually. 
You see, there's this emotional adrenaline rush when you acquire new truth and new information and, and new studies and, and, and inspiration and revelation. I mean, like, oh, there's a study over here. Ah, let's run. And you get to that study, and while you're blown away, and then you, oh, there's another study going over here. Oh, we run over here. And oh, this person's released this DVD series. Oh, we run to that. And it's like the, the kind of like the adrenaline rush to get the latest new truth that might change your life is oh, it's intoxicating. It's almost addictive. But the plain old working out the truth in the nuts and bolts of everyday life, when, like our dear brother said, we were given ownership of the building, but all hell was breaking loose, and there were forces against us, and, and they, they had to wait six years of slugging it out, before the promise became a reality? Folks, I don't know about you, but I would probably quit after a month. In other words, the faith culture of the world that we live in presently here in North America doesn't encourage the long obedience in the same direction. It encourages the, well, if God didn't do anything, I guess he's not doing anything. So on to the next project. Well, God didn't heal me, or God didn't do this, or God didn't work in my finances. God didn't put my marriage back together. Oh, well, you know, next. Now, I, I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. I just want to be careful when I said because every situation is unique. But the point is, is that I'm going to stay, I'm going to persevere with the word. Persevere and do the hard work of believing, trusting, staying with God. I, I think we've lost that ability in our obedience. Okay. Many of you, or some of you may remember Kay Arthur. Kay Arthur was a great Bible teacher, and remember, she, she, had, she kind of gave this kind of language to the church when it came to studying the Bible. She said, there's three key things about, uh, you know, when you go to do an inductive Bible, say there, that's it, inductive Bible. You got to observe. What does the passage say? And then after that, you got to interpret. What does the passage mean, right? It meant something to the people back then, but what does it mean to us today? Back then helps us to understand what it means to us today. Then you got to apply it. How does this apply to me? What will I do about it? Now, when I, when I, I read her book, did her study, actually got trained by organization, and um, she had this little chart that, I, I know, I, but I'm not trying to get, read that to you. I want to make a point. Uh, Point. Okay, that looks like a big point. So this is her sheet that everybody gets, right? Now watch this. Look at the, look at the emphasis upon observation. What does the Bible say? Look at the emphasis made upon interpretation. What does the Bible mean? What does the scripture mean? And there's all kinds of things to learn. But look at this. Less than a paragraph given to how do I apply it in my life. Folks, that is about 90% of studies designed for North Americans in the world that we live in presently. There will be no end to what does the scripture say? Oh, look at this and cross-reference with that verse and that verse and that book and oh, oh, oh. and well, what does it mean? Well, we like, I mean, the literature on Bible interpretation, on language studies and grammar and 
You, you could go into debt buying that stuff. But the challenge of just simply, how do I make this work in my life? And I'm guilty as charged. I look at some of the messages I've preached. I look at the things that I've taught, even in this church, and I go, you really didn't push hard for a very practical application. i got to land this plane. Knowing the truth without obeying the truth leads to self-deception. Please, folks, can we just agree on this, even if you dislike me for it? Can we stop saying this to ourselves whenever anybody preaches or teaches? Oh, yeah, I've heard that before. Oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I, I know that. Instead, can we say this to ourselves? Have I done that? Do I do that? What he's talking about, do I do that? When was the last time I've actually did that? You see, we should be asking ourselves questions like that instead of, oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I heard that before. Yeah, I, I went to a study at Harvest, and yeah, they, they talked about that. I don't have to. I could tune out. There are times when obeying God will require consistent, continual effort on your part to do what he's asking you to do. There's just simply no way around it. Folks, action precedes the knowing of truth. The decision to do what's right will always precede or come before the desire to do what's right. That's how the virtue of dedication is formed. We choose and we commit to doing what's right, which is character forming, and ultimately we are changed by it. If I decided to do, if I waited till I desired to do something before I ever did it, I would do nothing. There are some days I just, I have to choose. I have to say, I must do this. Even if I don't want to, even if I don't feel like it, I know this to be true. And oh, surprise, surprise, how it becomes real after I do it. That's why Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God already at work in you. Work it out. Last point, how you listen to Scripture is as important as what you hear. How you read Scripture is as important as what you see in Scripture. How you listen is as important as what you hear. How you read is important as what you see. The point is, it's the condition of our heart when we're listening. It's the condition of our heart when we're looking into Scripture. Because Jesus makes this, you know, this is kind of like rubber meets the road statement. He says, pay attention carefully to what you hear. And he essentially act on it. For the person who does will have more. For the person who doesn't, even the little that they have will be taken away from them. And I'm going, Jesus, that's kind of like, that's harsh. It's, 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 that's, a, that's a hard, that's like a big cod liver oil pill to swallow. Yuck. But he understands the nature of the word of God. That if we don't act on it, there are forces at work 
that will shrink our heart, that will shrink our ability to obey, that will shrink our understanding, and then we fall victim to what the author in Hebrews 5 says, at the time that you ought to be teachers of the word. You need someone to teach you all over again the very basic principles of the word of God. You need milk and not meat. You have become dull of hearing. Folks, if there's ever a day and age where we as the people of God need to be hearing clearly and obeying God quickly and doing what he's asking us to do is now. My wife developed this little mantra with our kids. <laughs> I'm going to get it wrong. I've heard it 1,001 times. I tried to copy it whenever she says it, when she, and I still get it wrong, right? I, it ends up sounding more like a, a butchered Shakespearean poem or something, but you know, she's like, come right away. Don't delay. Please obey. Right? Is that, is that how? No? It's, it's, I still get it wrong. I forget it. But, you know, that, that's how we kind of trained our kids, right? You as moms get this. You as dads get this. But moms really get it, right? Hun, supper time. Ah. Uh, <clears throat> supper time. Right? I'm joking, but you, you get the point. How much more should God, who is living in us through his Holy Spirit, who is looking at our lives and understanding the challenges that we face, the pressures, the opportunities, the crucial decisions we have to make day to day, life-changing decisions, challenges, opportunities, for ourselves, for our children, for our, our, our marriages, our finances, our retirement, the whole of life. And you see, we don't necessarily go around living each day like this, right? I'm, I'm just going to go to the bank with my Bible in my head, and I think God's going to speak to me through the Scripture as I talk to the bank manager, this is our training to know the heart of God, the character of God, so that when we are living in daily day life, this has already informed us. It's given us the foundation so that when we're in and about wherever we are, we can hear God speak through the word. Or when we're hearing thoughts, when they're guidance thoughts, when they're motivating thoughts or prompting thoughts, we can know that, no, that doesn't line up with the Word of God. Or, yeah, that does line up with the Word. The point is, is that when you are in crucial situations where you've got to make a decision, you don't have time to run home and read your Bible. You don't have time to make it out to ladies' time out on a, on a Thursday morning and go, okay, what, what did that speaker say? Don't just be hearers, be doers of the word. And when you do it, it becomes learning, it becomes the treasure in your heart, and then God can speak to it, through it, and guide you and direct you wherever you may be.
But folks, beware, and I want to say it till I'm blue in the face, the days of just kind of hearing and think we know because we've heard and we know, it means nothing. And that is going to be a, a hard idol to break through. But Scripture makes it clear, you only know what you've obeyed. You only know what you've obeyed. Heavenly Father, man, I want to I want to preach these make them laugh happy messages, but somehow this one didn't end up being that. I mean, there's humor in our condition, God, and you know that. You know, we're just like little children. We hear you calling us, and we're saying, yeah, I'm listening, I'm coming, I'm coming. And we wander off and forget. But right now, Lord, where we are now, in light of what we have wrestled with in Scripture and heard and talked about and processed and are meditating on or maybe, maybe even taken offense at, we simply want to be the kind of people who don't just hear and store knowledge in our head and think about how nice that truth was and how, how good I felt when I heard that. We want to be the kind of people who let the truth go from our head to our heart to our hands all in one motion. We want to live it out. And that is not easy, God. We have, we have been reminded through Scripture today that sometimes we have to persevere in it. Sometimes it's going to feel like work. But if we persevere and we do the work, we'll be blessed. And I know, Lord, that that is your heart for your people today. It's to bless them with the knowledge and the experience of having obeyed you and what that means in their own experience. So, Lord God, as we prepare ourselves today to move on and go into another week. Would you give us the hunger not just to hear, but to do? That regrettably, two out of three is bad. It's not just observing and interpreting, it's applying. It's living the truth. It's holding on to it. And for those who are courageous enough today to go and live the truth, Abba, when it doesn't feel good, when obedience hurts, when obedience doesn't feel inspiring, grant them grace and strength through your spirit. Help them to stay true to doing the right thing. That's what will transform us.